Konnichiwa and welcome to the Board Game Dojo where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric. Thank you so much for tapping into our podcast. There's lots of choices to pick from, so we are glad you are giving us some of your time today. It's pretty fun being a part of this community because, although difficult at times, people as a whole enjoy games, and I enjoy sharing and spreading the joy of gaming wherever and whenever I can. And that's true of so many others in this great community. But as fun as it might be, there is a limit to the games we can share both in terms of our personal limits, but also limits to the games themselves. This could be in terms of the heaviness of the game, its physical, I don't know, behemothness? But it could also be because of the fundamental properties of the games, notably the language and culture it comes from. Today, we are going to talk about language independence in games, what makes the good ones good, and our picks for some of the best ones. The Board Game Dojo, as we are, is run by a multicultural group of people, and our game group spans seven countries and speaks, depending on the day, anywhere from three to six languages, some better than others. I can equally butcher Japanese and English, and my French is, well, mailed. So oftentimes we are looking for language-independent games to share with our group, but there are many reasons why people look for language-independent games. The most obvious one, I think, is similar to what I just talked about. It's the language barrier directly. It's the, I'm playing a game with people who don't speak my language or don't speak it well, so I need a game I can play with them. Another somewhat related reason is for importing and exporting. I get questions a lot about, if I import this game from Japan, do I need to know Japanese? Oh, if I get that really cute Eevee version of Point Salad from Korea, do I need to know Korean to play? Moreover, the language barrier is related to using games in the classroom. I have been an ESL teacher for five years and often used board games to teach different things. Code names to work on creatively using English, categories to work on English recall, and even cooperative games like Pandemic to work on using English to communicate one's point. But language-independent games are great, like Onitama, which I use to see if the student can teach the other students the rules of the game which there aren't many. But more than just adults and students not speaking the language, language independent games are also looked at when deciding what to buy to play with kids. Studies seem to support that kids can start learning shapes by two to three years of age, and pattern recognition, that is, how shapes and colors can interact in different ways, not too long after that. Reading is most commonly learned to a practical sense by around six to seven years old. Of course, all kids are different, but what this supports is that kids learn to identify colors, shapes, and patterns, or to bring it to the topic, they might be able to understand a game that uses problem-solving using symbols before they can play a game that requires problem-solving using cards that each have a different thing they need to read. I'm not just talking about kids' games made by Haba here, I'm talking about the idea that kids could play something like Baron Park or Hanami Koji before moving on to a game that is seen as a simple one that has a little reading involved. And these considerations, these contexts of why you're looking for a language-independent game can really shape what are and are not good language-independent games for you. Because, and maybe this is being a bit cocky, What I think we did on our list that is better than other lists on the internet and podcasts is that we take something else into consideration that is also incredibly important. Cultural independence. 
But before we get into that, let's talk about other things we look at in terms of what makes a game a good language-independent game, because I think it will hopefully clarify what I mean by cultural independence. One, and most obviously, is the fact that it doesn't have important words that need to be read. The emphasis here is on important, because there are some games that have words on the cards, but they are so unimportant that you don't need to read them to actually play the game. Think Race for the Galaxy, in which the worlds have a name, but you don't actually need to read them in order to know what the card does. Great language-independent games may use symbols, numbers, pictures, whatever, just not words to communicate what the player can or cannot do. And some of the great ones even include little symbols or calculations on the board to remind players of how scoring works, like Azul. Along the same lines, and often forgotten, okay, well... Um, no, debated aspect of language-independent games is the communication part of it. Language-independent can mean that there is no text on the cards, like we just mentioned. For many, especially those looking to import games, this is really what they mean by language-independent. Can I take this game and play it in my home language without having to do paste-ups or buy a different translated version? But for many, this isn't good enough because they are playing with people who speak different languages at one table. This is something that happens to us a lot. In fact, one time it led to absolute disaster. It was my birthday party a few years ago and I didn't take this into account. So we played games like The Resistance in which as long as you understood one or two words or the color or symbol, you knew your goal. But because not everyone had the same grasp of the English language, the game fell apart with one person feeling so bad for quote unquote ruining the game because they couldn't communicate with their team. I feel so bad about it even today because I should have taken that into account, that the cards can be language independent, but the game is not, because the game requires communication. So the question becomes, do you need communication to make the game work? Or even more important, do you need communication to make the game fun? This takes some games off the list that, by looking at the border cards, you think are language independent like Cockroach Poker, where you always need to say what the card is or isn't. The game relies on lying, bluffing, and is the most fun when you can all laugh at each other. What this brings up is the question of what language independency is, and why we started the description by asking why you're looking for a language independent game. Maybe I'm being argumentative, I'm fine with being labeled as such, but I don't think language independence is just one thing. Because the thing is, when we are looking for something or asking something, the literal definition often isn't enough. It is the implication, the implied contextual clues that matter. Think about it this way. If my wife goes to the fridge, looks around in it, and asks if there's anything good to eat, I could just answer yes or no. Like, no, there isn't because I'm terrible at grocery shopping. I'm literally answering the question. But I think I'd get in trouble if I just said that because I'm missing the implication that she is probably hungry. It's the same when someone is looking for a language-independent game, except that their purpose is not as easy to understand as hunger. There is a reason they are looking for it, and it isn't crystal clear what that context is. But that context, the way people interpret things because of their own situations and experiences, it lends itself to assigning definitions quickly. In other words, it's our backgrounds that make us interpret it differently, just like we may interpret symbols, jokes, or ideas differently based on how we grew up. And this is why it's also important to include cultural independence as well when we are talking about language independence. 
For many people, the context of trying to find a language-independent game means that they are importing the game from another country or trying to see if they can, in fact, play the game with someone who speaks another language, which means most likely that multiple cultures are interacting. Whether it's that the Japanese game is interacting with the American player or the Canadian player interacting with the Taiwanese player, our cultural backgrounds could become a barrier that wouldn't otherwise exist in the game. Let me give you an example of what I mean in terms of a game I like to play at parties, the Jackbox Party Pack. If you've never played these games, they are video games that have multiple minigames in them. Some are trivia-based, some are similar to Cards Against Humanity, some are just plain stupid silly fun. I decided to play a game called Gespionage, in which one player at a time is given a question and they have to guess the percentage they think applies to it. Everyone else guesses if they think that person's answer is too low or too high. Here, let's play. I'll give you a question and you think about what you'd give us as an answer. What percentage of people are lactose intolerant? Okay, got your answer before I'm sued? Alright, okay. In the world, 68% have some sort of lactose intolerance. But here's what I mean by this cultural dependency. Jackbox often uses American data for their answers. In the US, only 12% of people are lactose intolerant, meaning that if you're using your availability heuristic, that is your thought process that uses what you can think of first, and you're American, you'd think almost nobody is lactose intolerant because you probably don't know many people who are, unless you're part of a lactose intolerant club or something, in which case, sorry. But let's look at other countries. Japan, 73%. India, 61%. South Korea, nearly 100%. But again, U.S., only 12% of people, U.K., 8%, Ireland, 4%. So basically, the answer I gave you, 68%, would be more difficult for those from quote-unquote Western countries, whereas the jackbox answer they'd probably give, 12%, would be difficult from those from quote-unquote Eastern countries. Now, imagine you need to answer questions like that for 30 minutes, and suddenly, if even if you speak the language, the barrier is too high to have fun. So let's go over some other things with cultural dependence. First of all, translations and jokes. Some things just don't carry over and the amount that matters is different. My dream job actually would be to localize for Nintendo because wow, the amount of pun they have in their games is hilarious. For example, in Animal Crossing, why is Tom Nook named Tom Nook? It's because the animal he is in Japanese is Tom Nuki, Tom Nuki. And why are radishes the stock market? because the word is the same for those two things in Japanese, kabu. These little puns and jokes aren't important for knowing the game, but they add a little flair to it for those that know the language. But like puns being more understandable and usable if you know the language, the connotations of words and the ability to use those words are different. And so we get to another aspect of language independence, not only the ability for them to have a limited amount of communication, but the ability for people from different cultures to be able to use the limited amount of words effectively, even if they can somewhat speak the language. Take, for example, A Fake Artist Goes to New York, an excellent oinky game in which every player but one knows the word that is supposed to be drawn. They'll vaguely try to draw the picture one line at a time, trying to parse out who else knows what the word is supposed to be. But the one person who has no idea what the word is needs to try to figure it out while blending in. It's a hilarious game and often thought to be language independent since you can basically play the game in whatever language you speak since your group is the one that comes up with the words. I'm not going to argue about it being language independent in the context of looking to import the game. 
but it becomes a lot harder when you're playing with people from different cultures due to the different associations of words as well as the ability to use vagueness to best play the game. Again, it's not only the can someone do it, it's also is the game enjoyable in that way. Now, this isn't to say that games that infuse a little bit of culture into it are a bad thing, far from it. Games offer us a window into other cultures, and language-independent games offer an especially interesting way of showing us art and themes we wouldn't see in games from our own countries. But the problem arises when the cultural barrier becomes an impediment to the game, no longer offering wonder, but hindrance. Finally, the last thing to take note of, and it is separate from cultural assets, is the ability to understand what is going on without having to refer back to the rulebook constantly. What I mean by that is, some games have no or at least nominal amounts of text, instead opting for symbols to show what's happening. Okay, so far so good, but then they'll have tiles in which you need to refer back to the rulebook to figure out what they are, or so much symbology that you can't ever keep track of what they all mean. It defeats the purpose of having symbology in the first place if you have to keep going back to the rulebook to see what the symbols mean. It's rare that a game that would require that would be on my best of list because unless you need to look up what cool special powers do, I think it's generally a sign of a not so great game if you need to consult the rulebook constantly even after a couple plays. So that's it. That's what we think language independent games are. Maybe we took it to its extreme and that's okay. Everyone has different reasons why they need language independent games and I think our evaluation of them does them justice. So now it's time to get into our top 10 list. Before we begin, let me give one caveat to this list. We are making the big assumption that someone can teach this game to people in whatever language is needed. So this list will include games that are in different languages. There just isn't really a way of getting around this. We aren't going to do a top 10 games where you don't explain the rules using words. We are saying from the moment the teach is over, the game is language independent. This list is done not by how good the game is, meaning that the number one game is not necessarily the best game in a vacuum. The list is how good of a game it is in terms of being a language independent game. As in, if I bring it to a group of people who don't speak the same language, how likely is it to be successful? The number one game I just find is more successful in that arena than the number 10 game, even though the number 10 game might actually be the better game. Does that make sense? I hope so. We're also not going to include any trick takers or standard card games. So now, without further ado, let's begin. Right away, I have to apologize because I'm kind of cheating by putting in two games at number 10, Jamaica and Mysterium. Okay, you are allowed to go, how on earth are you combining these two games? Jamaica, on the one hand, is a racing game in which players will roll the dice and choose and uh, morning and night action that can include moving or getting resources. Mysterium, on the other hand, is a game in which one player is a ghost that tries to get players to figure out the murderer, murder weapon, and murder location without speaking, using only dreamlike cards to give clues. These games are nothing alike, so why do they share a place at number 10? Well, partly because I just wanted them both on this list, but also because they are good examples of what I mean by the ordering of this list. The games are good as language-independent games, but they are great as language-dependent games. Hearing your friends bicker about what your vague cards mean in Mysterium or having combat in Jamaica are things that really elevate these games. So while they are language-independent enough to make this list, they aren't at their best like the rest of the games here. 
These are two games we recommend playing, however, as they both are light enough to explain to both hobbyists and those new to gaming, and good enough to stay in your collection even after a few plays or in non-language independent settings. Number 9 is another cheat. Sorry, I'm bad at this. More games for you, I suppose. And it's just roll and rights, or flip and write games. I say it as a category because there's just so darn many, and most of them will work. Now, are these going to be the most fun times you're going to have with a new group of people? Mm, probably not. But they do the job well at giving you all a collective experience without having to communicate most of the time. Once you're done explaining the rules up front, most of the game is simply someone rolling or flipping, and then everyone else does what the symbol says. If you're looking for a light one to play with non-gamers, I recommend Super Mega Lucky Box, which is essentially bingo where players will get points for filling up their cards while trying to combo their bingos to fill out more bingo cards. Bingo is a pretty international game, so people tend to understand this one quickly and easily. If you're looking for something a bit heavier, I'd go with Welcome 2, as most of the card powers are represented by intuitive symbols on the cards. Oh, the tree symbol means parks. Oh, the pool symbol means pools. These kinds of games are ones that I always take with me to international gaming groups because they work so well in a language-independent setting and can play a lot of people. I think it's time to bring up one of our honorable mentions that barely missed the list. I'm going to sprinkle in a few of these, especially if they are ones that I see on other lists about the best language-independent games. The first one I'll mention I mentioned before, but I will bring it up now again just in case you skip to the top 10 list. And that's A Fake Artist Goes to New York. This game is one we talked about in our Oink Games podcast as a great game, but for this episode, it doesn't really always work in a group with different backgrounds. In A Fake Artist, one player will come up with a word, and they will write it down on everyone else's boards, except one person. They will write an X on that person's board. Effectively meaning that that one person has no idea what word it is. There's one sheet of paper in the middle that everyone, one at line at a time, will draw the word with. They want to make it clear enough that the others know that they are the good team that knows what the word is, but not so obvious that the fake artist, the person with the X on their card, can figure it out. It's such a fun game, but it falls off this list because some words have different associations in different cultures, and the amount of vagueness someone can kinda draw something with, or the quick associations one has with a word, like if sushi is a thing that is just fish on rice, or if it comes rolled with cream cheese and salmon, can just move this game out of the consistently fun category to the boom or bust category. Nani. Alright, number 8. Let's go with a game that requires you not to talk with your other players. Let's go with The Mind. The Mind is a game in which you are not allowed to talk to others, and you need to work as a team to count upwards from 1 to 100. In round 1, each player only has one card in their hand, but as the round increases, so too do the number of cards in everyone's hands. It's a stressful cooperative game that builds tension, and it's strange how hyped this game was when it came out a couple years ago, and now it's just on clearance for like $5 at Target and Walmart. It's the cheapest game on this list, and it works really well for any group. Even if it doesn't have the legs that is, you're not going to play this 50 times probably. But for $5, the mind belongs on this list. If you like the idea of having little to no communication games, but don't like the way this sounds, we also recommend Hanabi, The Game, or one with a board, Magic Maze. I think out of this group, Magic Maze is probably the best game in a vacuum. Sju. 
Number seven is a game that I see all over the interwebs on best language independent game lists, and it's easy to see why. It's accessible, it's cute, and it's a solidly pleasant game about bears. Our number seven is Baron Park. Baron Park is one of many in the genre, well, genre, category, whichever. It uses polyominoes, and you'll be building out a bear theme park by putting tiles filled with different bear exhibits, lazy rivers, and bathrooms. This game works so well because everyone can quickly understand the theme, the rules overhead is minimal, and it really is a fun game. I'm pretty down on polyomino games in general, they really aren't my jam, and maybe it's because I'm just so bad at them, but this one always strikes me as a good time that doesn't overstay its welcome. If you prefer, Project L and New York Zoo are also pretty good polyomino games, with New York Zoo being much more thematic while Project L offers more timely decisions, and Patchwork is a popular two-player polyomino game even though I'm not the biggest fan of it. But Baron Park deserves to be as recognized as it is for its language independence and enjoyment. The next honorable mention is one I intentionally went with because I feel it was super popular, then became forgotten due to not being the Splendor killer everyone thought it would be, Century Spice Road. Now, Splendor is another good one to put here, but I don't really like Splendor, so I'm not going to put it on a top 10 list. Century Spice Road is the prototypical cube pusher. Yes, there's technically a theme of buying and converting spices into more profitable spices to get better cards, but really it's an engine builder where you play a card, and the card will say something like, convert two red cubes into one yellow cube or whatever color you're doing. And then you go, oh no, I need to buy a card that allows me to convert these yellow cubes into green cubes. So then you spend cubes to do that. And then once you can do that, you buy the high point cards that require two greens and a yellow. Most points at the end of the game wins. It make it sound a bit repetitive and that's because it kind of is. But for a list like this, that's almost exactly what you want. I think gateway games are a bit maligned because people inherently assume simple is not as good of a game as something more complex. But this game offers enough choice and ways of doing things that anyone can come up with a strategy and win. The teach is extremely easy and might actually be a rare game where you could just show the rules instead of explaining it. It works really well as an introduction to modern games for people, and thanks in part to its simplicity, it's easy to make combos nature, and inexpensiveness, I think it deserves a spot in collections for those who may need games to show to others. Say. Alright, let's crack on to number 6, and this one is weird because I think most glance over it as a kids game, although I have been seeing some uptick in people talking about it thanks to its excellent implementation on BGA, and the objective fact that marbles are fun. Number 6 is Potion Explosion. This game has worked really well for me in groups that vary in cultures and language. In Potion Explosion, a player on their turn will take a marble out of the track, causing all their marbles to come rolling down that track. If two marbles collide in the same row that are the same color, you get to take those marbles too, which may make more same colored marbles crash so you can take those too. It's an addicting loop of trying to find the best combos to get the most marbles. You'll use these marbles to make potions that will give you points and grant you certain one-time powers like getting to take any marble from the tray for free or getting to use marbles as any color. These one-time powers are shown by symbols, which is besides the rules the only thing that might need reiterating throughout the game, but there are only five of them I believe in the base game, so it's not hard to keep track of. The tactility of the marbles paired with the excitement of combos make this a great game to break out, and there's just enough strategy to make this a fun game for those new or experienced with hobby games at all ages. I think the BGA implementation is good if you want to try it, but to be honest, so much of the fun is getting to play with marbles, so don't base your judgment 100% on how it is on there. 
Before we get to the top five, let's throw in another just missed category of games. I'm going to call these the Beige Bros because they are kind of dusty euros that are technically language independent, but because of the powers they grant people often require some semblance of looking things up in the rulebook throughout the game to figure out what these special powers do. These include great games like Grand Austria Hotel, Marco Polo, and Orléans. These are fantastic games that you could easily print out a one-page translation for the tile powers and play with other people, as the tiles themselves have no text, just symbols. But I've had games of each that came to a standstill due to needing to find rulebooks in other languages to explain the player powers, which are some of the attractive forces of these games. Sorry, Beige Rose, you're great. You're really beige, but not completely language independent. If you disagree with me on this, let me know on Twitter or Instagram at the Board Game Dojo. Punch. I think I could make an entire list of just abstract games that work for this topic. Abstract games, by definition, don't really have much of a theme, and therefore tend to not be overly complicated to the same extent that a Lacerda might be. They generally have little luck, and so therefore usually have all of the mechanics explained before the game begins, meaning that these games tend to be good for those wanting to replay their games and figure out good strategies, reactions, and positionings. Chess is an example, a game that has spread throughout the world in its lifespan, which by the way, you can learn more about in our History of Board Game series that we did. But for this list, it is not chess we want to talk about, but rather a game that has since come out with three more versions of the original game, and may just be the best abstract game to come out in decades, and that's Azul. Azul is a game in which you place tiles from the common board onto your player board, being careful not to take too many of the same color because you'll lose points for wasting them. Depending on the timing and location of your pieces, you may get bonus points for completing rows, adjacencies, or completing every spot that needs a certain color, like completing all five blue spots. Azul is a great game, and one that I think would be higher if not for being kinda hard to teach. By the time the first game is finished, everyone will understand, but having to explain this game is a bit difficult in one language, let alone multiple. It's worth it though, as this game is one in which people will ask to play again and again. Once you start, there's no need to communicate with others unless you want to plead with them unsuccessfully to not take the piece you want or groan when they 100% do just that. If this doesn't sound like your cup of tea, there are lots of excellent language-independent abstracts out there, like Onitama or Hive if you like chess, Calico if you like cats and or tile placement, or Ricochet Robots if you like spatial puzzles. Sometimes you put a game in front of people and they look at you like you put down the most boring looking game. Maybe they start looking for an exit. Maybe they suddenly get an important phone call. Or maybe they just go, ah, no thanks. And you go, exactly, that's the name of the game we're playing. Terrible intro, but good game. Our number four is no thanks. I'm also going to group in for sale here because A, I didn't have room on this list for both to be separate, but B, I tend to find that the same group of people that likes one of these like the other one as well. No thanks is a very simple game. On your turn, you have two choices. Either say no thanks and put a chip from your hand on that card or take that card and any chips on it. If you take the card, you gain the number of points that the card says. The winner is whoever has the least points at the end of the game. However, you only have a certain number of chips to use. So if you run out of chips, you have no choice but to take the card. And the only way to get more chips is to take cards that other people have said no to. It's a deviously simple yet strategic game, and sometimes it can be really funny as people are so afraid of taking the cards. 
This game actually dates back to 2004, making it not quite the oldest on this list. That'll be number two. But it's easy to see why. The rules are easy to understand. People can pipe in with their own language equivalent of absolutely not, and it's so quick that you can play it as a filler game. The other game I have in this spot is For Sale, a two-part auction game in which you buy and then sell your properties. Like No Thanks, you don't necessarily need to voice your move. You can simply put down the coins needed to bid or play your card to sell. Again, this game can be really funny, but this game is thanks to its artwork, as a cardboard box house can sell for something like $10,000, but a high-end mansion can sell for $2,000, because hey, that's just the market. Again, I find that these games satisfy the same type of people. The games that by themselves are fun, but the situation and reactions of people are what make these games really shine. Okay, time to go against the grain again. There are some games that I don't know how they make so many best language independent game lists. I sometimes wonder if we are playing the same games, but I also wonder if it's more of a Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And these games are Lords of Vegas, Skull, and Cockroach Poker. These are fantastic games. I mean, they are absolutely each in my top 50 all time but these are not language independent games. Okay, let me back up and explain each really briefly. Skull and Cockroach Poker are bluffing games in which you'll be lying to your friends trying to eliminate them or win yourself. In Skull, you'll play either a Skulled or Roses on the table and either try to bid on how many people's cards you think are Roses or try to get someone to flip over your card and oh, you played a Skull so they lose a card. The winner is either the last person standing or the first to win two bids and successfully flip over that many cards. Cockroach Poker is more straight line, as you'll have to give someone a card and say what kind of bug it is, and then they can either choose to believe you or call you a liar. If they are wrong, they have to keep that card in front of them, and if they get four of the same type of bug, they lose and everyone else wins. Lords of Vegas is very different, as it's more of a step up from Monopoly. In it, players will be buying and selling lots of Las Vegas and building hotels on them. They can go and gamble at other people's casinos or trade land with each other. Most money at the end of the game wins. What each of these games have in common is that the cards themselves are language independent. Skull is simply coasters with artwork of skulls or roses. Cockroach Poker is simply cards with bugs on them. And Lords of Vegas has names of the casino genre, but honestly, I couldn't tell you because we just call them gold hotels or silver hotels. So yeah, technically you could play them as language independent games. But why would you? You lose everything that makes the games great, I think. Sure, you could hold up a number of fingers as you bid in Skull, or point your finger to a bug on the back of the cards as you give it to someone in Cockroach, or just play without trading or by miming in Lords of Vegas. But again, why would you? The games are clearly supposed to encourage communication, coaxing your friends and family into making a stupid bet, or being obnoxious so that they think you're lying. You're supposed to smooth talk and make Vegas alliances before actually going and taking over their casinos. These games, they create little stories as you play them, and with no communication, you just get these almost soulless experiences. This just probably has to do with language independent meaning different things, but don't buy these games if you're playing with people who speak different languages. Yes, you technically can play them as language independent games, but should you? Nah. Alright, now that that negativity is out of the way, let's get to our top three. Our number three is another unassuming little box of goodness, and this time it comes to us from the country in which accordions were invented. I'll give you a moment to guess it. Germany! Our number three game is Coloretto. 
a game I really didn't think I would like, but Board Game Barrage's barrage of praise for it convinced me to give it a go, and now it's a mainstay in my meetup arsenal. In Colorado, each turn gives you the simple option of either A, drawing and playing the top card in the deck, or B, taking a row of cards already played. You'll be trying to make sets of same colored chameleons, all while trying to get others to have sets of different colored ones. Why? Because at the end of the game, you score positive points for the three largest sets you create, but you get negative points for the rest of your sets. It's a fun push-your-luck style set collection game that can make people swear in their own language, but also says, again, I want to try again. There have been multiple instances of starting the game night with this one, and then it turns into the only one we play. Right now, it can be a bit difficult to find, but thanks to its language independence, you can import this one until it comes back into print. No. Wow, top two. These must be good. You know, I don't really like top 10 lists. It always feels weird, especially when the games are nothing alike. But here we are, and really I want to emphasize that anything on this list would make a great addition to the collection. But we have to choose, and our number two game is... Actually, it's two games again. Yeah, I think this list is turning into a top 20. Our number two games are two absolute classics of push your luck, goodness, ink and gold, and can't stop. Both of these games are absolute excellence, which is probably why they both have been around for a long time. Can't Stop is the choice if you want some dice randomness. In Can't Stop, you'll be rolling dice to try to climb up mountains. You roll four dice trying to combine them to ascend different parts of the mountain, maybe the 7 value column or the 10 value column. During your turn, you can select up to three columns to ascend for that turn, depending on what you roll. At any time, you can stop and that saves your progress. And you'll want to do that because at any point, if you roll and cannot combine the dice to make column you've decided on for that round, you bust, and all the progress from that turn is lost. The first to get to the top of the column wins that column, and nobody else can climb that one for the rest of the game. First to win three wins. I like this game for the tension it builds, and it's the better of these two games for three or four people. But that's the max count for this game, so that may just be the deciding factor for you, along with maybe you don't like dice. So I give to you another option, ink and gold, or diamond? Diamant? Not really sure how to pronounce that. Depending on the edition you have, in Ink and Gold, which I call Indiana Jones the game, you are all adventurers going into a cave to try to permanently borrow some ancient artifacts, British Museum style. You'll collect gems along the way, but you'll have to deal with the traps along the way. Every turn, you'll have to decide to press forward for more riches or turn around and go home, keeping the riches you've acquired thus far. As you can guess, if you stay and you get two of the same type of trap, like spiders or snakes, Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? You lose everything you've acquired that turn. It's also a great game, and unlike Can't Stop, it's the more the merrier. Six to eight people is the sweet spot for this one. Either way, you can't go wrong, and I've yet to have a game of either of these not be enjoyed by all. If you could only buy one, I'd say Ink and Gold since it can accommodate more people, but they're both cheap enough that you can probably get away with having them both. Before we get to number one, let's give some honorable mentions. The numbers 11 to 15, if you will. Well, kind of. I've given a lot of games here, but hey, you can't say I don't give a lot of content. Number 15, Deep Sea Adventure. It's not really my game of choice, but so many people like it that I can't help but include it here. It's a push-your-luck game by Oink Games in which you need to dive deeper into the ocean to collect more valuable treasure, but you gotta get back to the ship before running out of oxygen. Number 14, Takenoko. How about a cute game about a panda and growing bamboo? 
Takenoko is a game in which you'll need to grow different colors of bamboo and feed them to an incredibly hungry panda. This game's surprising depth that I wouldn't expect, and because of it, I'm not quite sure I can recommend it for those new to gaming. It's in the same depth as Wingspan, I think. Completely doable, but in a weird in-between. Because of it, it misses the top 10. Number 13, Tokaido. A pleasant game about going down the Tokaido Road while buying souvenirs, eating food, and painting natural landscapes, it is absolutely gorgeous, and it is easy to understand and completely language independent. I've acquired this game a few times, and it's never quite had the staying power to stay in my collection, but I recommend it for groups that include people who are new to gaming because of its enticing artwork and plethora of content. Number 12, Sushi Go Party. Oh, this is the largest outstretch what a language independent game is. Technically, this game has text on the cards, but you play with such few types that you can easily explain them before you begin. In Sushi Go, you'll be drafting cards, meaning you have a hand of cards, you pick one, then pass the rest to the person beside you who will do the same. The art is adorable, and it's a great introduction to drafting, much more preferable than Seven Wonders for new players, which is also a good drafting game, a bit more complicated to get one's head around. Number 11, Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Ludwig, woof, that was an embarrassing mistake that I'm going to absolutely keep in there. I really wanted to make it the top 10. I really did, but it just misses because while the game is good, I always incredibly enjoy the after game where you inspect others' castles and make fun of them for having the shower next to the dungeon or the dining room on the complete other side of the castle as the kitchen. I recommend this for groups that want some more strategic depth without getting overly bogged down by rules as this one was one of the first hobbyist games and now I have the collector's edition, meaning it has long staying power. Alright, finally time for number one. Are you still here? That's awesome. Thanks for sticking around. Let me know what your favorite game on this list is on our Instagram and Twitter. I'll put the links below. The number one best language independent game is Crash Octopus. Crash Octopus is a game that I show everyone because there just isn't anything else quite like it. In Crash, you are pirates trying to collect treasure all while trying to avoid a giant octopus. It is a dexterity game, so to collect treasure, you'll actually be using a little flag to flick them. But watch out, because other people can try to knock your stuff off of your ship with the octopus. Now this game is pretty hard to find, but it is incredibly fun. I've shown this to my 70-year-old in-laws, my late 20s friends, and even younger cousins, and the laughs that come from this game are contagious. Now I can understand that this one might be a bit expensive or a bit difficult to find for some. So I also recommend Ice Cool, a game about flicking penguins where one person is the hall monitor trying to catch the other players. And I also recommend Yoda Yoda Penguin, which you can find out more about on our YouTube. Basically, the best games we find to play with language-independent groups are dexterity games because they are usually intuitive, have mechanics that bring people together because they are obvious good shots or good plays, and to be honest, are just the easiest to bring out and get people to understand why they'll be fun. No matter the culture, the language, games are something that people grow up with, and dexterity games, more than most others, are just better at bringing out that playful side of people. But really, any of the games mentioned today are going to grant you a good time, we hope. And we hope that you enjoyed our discussion of what language independent games are. For all of us here at the Board Game Dojo behind the scenes, we really appreciate you listening today. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app and tell others about it. It's really the best way to the show. Have a great day. Sayonara. Sayonara.